Hello and welcome to the Happy You Are Here podcast. In this show, we talk about tools, techniques, and ideas to help us live more fulfilling and connected lives. In this episode, normally we do video, but we are going to just do audio in this circumstance because the video, there was a bit of lag that was going on between the internet connections, which the audio actually turned out fine because we record on the local systems on both computers when we do record. However, the uh, videos did not sync up uh, and it's pretty distracting. So we are just going to go with the audio because the audio sounds great. There's a lot of great content here. And I am you know, respectful of Dr. Yishan Shu, who is the guest. Uh, I'm respectful of her time. And I want to make use of this great content that we recorded. So in this episode, we talk about sleep, specifically how does sleep affect mental health and also how does mental health affect sleep? Dr. Yishan Shu is a clinical psychologist at Mind and Body Garden Psychology in California and works in different areas, different spaces, but, but has a lot of experience and specialization in sleep and how that relates to mental health and, and other potential disorders. So there's a lot of really interesting things. I got to ask a lot of questions that people ask me a lot about sleep, and I had some misconceptions. So there's some interesting things in here, like studies about caffeine. How does caffeine affect your sleep? It's not what I had thought and what I had read in articles. Excited to be able to share this with you. So here we go. Thank you for having me. So I'm a clinical psychologist, and uh, I have my own group practice in San Francisco South Bay area. We mostly do bilingual services. We treat uh, different type of mental health disorders like anxiety, depression, and we see both adults and children. We have both psychologists, therapists, and psychiatrists. We all work together as a team. To uh, my goal originally was really to help the local Asian community to get rid of stigma of mental health because Asians are reluctant to reach out for help. They tend to handle things on their own, think it's shameful, right? So we really want to do a lot of education to the local community to help people know, hey, we are here, there are resources, and if you need help, please reach out. And so that's how we got um, started and now we are growing and we are working with the community very happily. Wonderful. I think the one thing that we connected on originally was sleep and how that relates to mental health in a lot of different ways. Uh, that's one of your areas of expertise of your specialty. So, you know, with some really broad strokes, we'll get into some actual actionable things that people can take away from this, but in some really broad strokes, um, you know, how significant is the effect of sleep quality uh, on mental health? Yeah, very good question. Yes, my own specialty is treating anxiety and uh, uh, sleep disorders, especially insomnia. I was trained in Stanford Sleep Medicine Center. I would say sleep and mental health are closely related possibly both in both directions. In, uh, we, we can see sleep as a symptom of a lot of diagnoses for both depression and anxiety and many other mental disorders. And at the same time, not only sleep quality, and it's just having different aspect of sleep disturbance. It could be a risk factor for some kind of mental health concerns. Uh, there are actually a lot of research 
showing if we have some kind of mental disorder, for example, if we are depressed, then we may have wrong estimation about how much we actually are sleeping. We may think we mm. sleep, we're not sleeping enough, but actually we are sleeping a lot longer. But this kind of perception can cause a lot more, you know, anxiety about sleep and just to uh, make us more depressed, feel hopeless about sleep. A lot of people feel like we lose the ability to sleep better. And also for a lot of people, if we have nightmares, uh, sometimes that could also be a risk factor for some kind of um, mental challenges. And there are several research so far showing actually nightmare itself, no matter whether we have a PTSD or depression, uh, just having nightmare itself may be, be a risk factor for suicidality. But at the same time, we need to remember having nightmare is, is common, it's normal, it indicates some stress, something like we bring into our dream. Uh, so don't be afraid of having it. But uh, I think as healthcare providers, we should be aware of it and just ask more questions about it and maybe give some intervention around it early on. A lot of people like to interpret nightmares and dreams, um, especially I think nightmares because they're so impactful on someone's psyche. Is that beneficial for people to do that? Uh, maybe to find out where a source of stress is? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I remember I had one episode talking about nightmares. There are some great research papers and intervention menus out there for treating nightmare. Actually, a lot of research shows just by interpreting the nightmare, try to dig down, say what's the content of it, what means to me, may not be helpful just by itself. Because interestingly, we in clinically, we more see nightmare as a habit. It's, it has its own function. Mm. Um, so when we have nightmare, yes, our brain is consolidating the past experience, the emotional experience, and try to help us survive better next time with similar situations. Uh, it possibly, sometimes it could be triggered by something in real life, sometimes it's not. But if we keep on having nightmare and we are concerned about it, eventually nightmare take on its own life. It's, it's um, become a new thing on its own. And then we start having more and more, it's become a habit. So um, we just need to really understand it, reduce the anxiety about it, and then slowly, you know, balance our positive thoughts, positive imagery and negative imagery, and then a lot of intervention in, uh, we can restructure, reframe the nightmare. We can change the nightmare eventually. We will get better and better. That's interesting. Yeah. I think that, you know, a lot of people from different maybe modalities have uh, a lot to say about, about nightmares. And, you know, obviously it's a, a trigger from, from stress or some kind of trauma, but it's interesting to conceptualize it as a habit. Uh, that kind of gets its own, a life of its own. So you mentioned briefly about how depression relates to sleep and that it distorts our uh, understanding of our, our perception of how, our, how we're sleeping. Um, I've personally experienced that where I have overslept significantly in, in bouts of depression, uh, but felt like I was not sleeping enough. And then it's just kind of, you at that point, you really don't know what to do. You're like, do I sleep more because I feel exhausted or 
do I force myself to wake up and, and stick to some kind of routine so that maybe I can move past this episode? What kind of thoughts do you have in that area or experience do you have in that area? Yes. So, uh, which is very common. One symptom of depression actually is sleeping too much or not enough, right? Either you have insomnia or you just cannot get off bed. Uh, a simple thing we normally encourage depressive, uh, depressed patients to do is just get up, get out, move. <laughs> it's um, because for sleep, it's tricky. The more we stay on bed, like sleeping longer, does not necessarily improve the sleep quality. And if you are not sleeping the whole time on bed, you are like just laying down there or oh, I'm so exhausted, I'm depressed, I just don't want to move, let me just be on bed resting. That is even worse for sleep because that eventually just confuse our brain. Our brain will think, well, when I'm on bed, I can be exhausted, worried, awake, I'm not always sleep. So our brain cannot help us to go to bed, feel like I want to sleep anymore. So we kind of like break this link between bed actually is for sleep. So mm -hmm. if we just lay on bed for too long, a lot of people, if they already have some kind of insomnia, no matter how long they stay on bed, their insomnia just gets worse and worse. Yeah, that's that, that link between a space and the mental uh, relation, your brain's relation to that space is something that keeps coming up in the podcast a lot, whether it's regarding your bed or a different room. Uh, people talk about kind of the separation of work and relax and play and connecting with others, uh, your brain kind of connects all of those things to spaces. So when you walk into a space, it's triggered. And if you mix a bunch of those things into one space, it has a tendency to get confused. You know, I think that is potentially a, a really valuable piece of actionable advice as to if, if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with staying in bed too long, like get up out of bed and also don't watch some a piece of advice a therapist had given me was don't watch television in bed. Don't don't even really read in bed, like go sit on your couch and read. And then when you're tired, go to bed and fall asleep because that starts to break that bond uh, between between your bed and, and other activities. Yes, exactly. That's a very good advice. Uh, we definitely uh, as sleep specialists, we do recommend people, you know, if you have sleep challenges, try to just use your bed for uh, sleep mostly and try to move all the other things away from bed. Sometimes even a chair beside the bed or on the floor of the bed, some of my patients do that, is fine. Yeah. <laughs> it just really helps your brain to pick up the signal. And one, one way of using that technique, um, in addition to what you mentioned, is in the middle of the night, right? If mm -hmm. we, because some people, their problem is they cannot stay asleep. And they, they would sleep for a little bit and then wake up, and then they just cannot go back to sleep anymore, no, ma no matter how hard they try and very frustrated about that. So that's another opportunity to leave the bed. Basically, anytime if we just cannot sleep, don't force it. Nobody can control sleep. Nobody can force sleep. Just get out of the bed, do something gentle, enjoyable uh, with dim light on, not too stimulating until you feel the sense of sleepiness. You feel sleepy. That's the cue from your body. And then you go back to bed. 
If you cannot fall asleep again, get up again. For some people at the beginning of the treatment, they actually have to do that more than 10 times per night. But that does not last for many nights. Some people one or two nights, some people less than a week, and then they can sleep better. So how does uh, anxiety play into sleep? I'm assuming it is a contributor sometimes to people that have trouble sleeping. Maybe they wake up often. Um, is there kind of an interplay? Does uh, sleep quality affect anxiety as well? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So what I normally see is there are two ways anxiety and sleep kind of uh, uh, play a role in each other's like course. Is for some people, you know, they when they start having some sleep disturbance, they start worrying about sleep more and more. This is a new worry, right? Oh, I cannot. I I did not sleep. Right. Well, last night. Well, what about this night? If I don't sleep well two nights in a row, I'm panicked. I'm very worried. What is going to do to my house? Will I ever be able to sleep uh, good again? So this can go on and go on, and people get become more and more sensitive about anything about sleep. All day long, they think about how I can sleep better tonight. And during the daytime, they may rest more. They may cancel plans in order to rest because they feel like I'm weak. I did not sleep well. I have to protect myself. I have to do something. But those exactly make sleep worse. So that's one type of anxiety for sleep. The other type of sleep,、uh, anxiety, I would say, just general anxiety. You know, nowadays people worry about jobs. Finance, worry about being sick, so all this worry and worry about children, and these kind of worries they actually happen more actively at night when we try to sleep. Our brain just cannot stop running. It's it's dark. It's quiet. It's perfect time for us to worry, and there's <laughs> a reason for that because. Our brain, you know, we have the emotional part of the brain, we have the rational part of the brain. When we try to sleep, our rational part of the brain actually is falling asleep. It does not work anymore. But nighttime, it's the time for our emotional brain. Now there's nothing to balance it, so our emotional brain just gets super active, and we start worry. And it pick on that, and just the emotion gets high and gets us worry more and more. So that, of course, make us、um, make our sleep quality can be bad, make make the sleep difficult to happen. So、um, can be related to insomnia or fragmented sleep. And of course, if we don't sleep well, a lot of people experience more mood disturbance during the day and more worries about、yeah. self and different things and more sensitive to any life challenges around them. So it's really. Negative,、uh, bi-directional interaction. How can someone start to correct that pattern, that kind of spiral that happens? Because yeah, I feel like most of us, at some point, at least in a little way, has experienced that. So、uh, when we treat sleep disorders, when we want to help people sleep better, that's why we always. Do two ways. Like one is behavioral. That's what you just mentioned. What you need to do. What you possibly want to avoid doing to adjust the sleep habit. But the other big component, which is very、uh, part of the evidence-based treatment for insomnia, called 
CBT for insomnia. The, the C part is the cognitive part. It's how to adjust our perception about sleep, about worries around our life that may interfere with sleep. So if we have a lot of worries about sleep, so we need to learn more uh, evidence-based knowledge about sleep. So to understand what's the real thing behind sleep. We need to know, oh, we don't have to sleep seven or eight hours. Not everyone needs to do that. We don't all have to, you know, go to bed at 11, get up at seven. That's not fit for all people. We can have like, you know, if you have insomnia, not necessarily you're going to have health consequences. Uh, it may like people have insomnia for 10 or 20 years. They're doing fine. You, you feel awful during the day, but your function will be okay. A lot of people with long-term insomnia, they still get promoted at work. They still handle a lot of challenges, even though they feel miserable, but they actually can function fine. So there are a lot of um, knowledge behind that. It's a big part of you know, helping people, this, this education. And that already can reduce a lot of anxiety about sleep. And then we can, regarding the like other type of anxiety, we can use some psychological intervention to help people, you know, change time to, to think, uh, to worry at night. I sometimes explain to people, you know, think about if you worry at night, you think a lot, a lot in the daytime, in the morning, have you ever find you have to re rethink about everything and replan everything, right? Did you really figure things out by giving it so much time <laughs> yes. at night? <laughs> if your, you know, if your frontal lobe is not working, you won't be able to plan things out. You know, I have had a lot of experience with that. Those like running thoughts in at night. Uh, I've dealt with a lot of anxiety in general, and that's usually, of course, when it's the hardest to kind of like talk yourself out of it and to step off the ledge, so to speak. And I think the thing that helps me the most is just reminding myself every time I have spiraling thoughts like this, is, is this something I can do about anything about right now? And at night, no, the answer is always no. Like I'm not going to do anything about this right now. So it's not worth thinking about if it's important, it'll come back up tomorrow and maybe I can do something about it then. And even during the day, that's generally a way to kind of uh, in my experience to, to lessen the like spiraling effects of anxiety is just to ask, is there something I can do about this? Cause if there's something you can do about it, then, you know, that helps work through the anxiety in a positive way. But if there's nothing you can do about it, then it's really, it's just patience. A lot of the times you have to deal with things. Yes. Yes. I totally agree. And there's a method related to what you just mentioned. We teach people called worry time, right? It's like, you know, we make sure you will handle it during the daytime and like 10 minutes, worry time. So that's where a lot of people feel safe. Okay. I don't, I, I can drop it at night because tomorrow, every day I have this 10 minutes time to think about it. And when you think about it, yes, part of the thing, like within worry time, there's a lot of things you can do, but part of the component is to teach people to figure out if this under my control or this is out of my control and what is like one next step I can do about it, no matter, you know, it's in my control or out of my control. That's just help people sort out and really when our brain works, not when our brain are sleeping. <laughs> yeah. 
No, that's valuable information. I didn't, I did not know that about the right brain, left brain, the cognitive side and the emotional side, having different levels of activity at night. Uh, that's really valuable. Yeah. I always believe having some, uh, good science-based knowledge, make it simple. You know, it does not have to be fancy. Uh, just this simple information makes sense to a lot of people and just make them more willing to try different methods. And when they feel like, oh, this actually is helpful even a little bit, they're more buy-in, more motivation to try. And then, you know, they really can benefit it. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you, what are, what are your thoughts on the, um, there's a bunch of different ones. There's all these like sleep tracking apps. Um, I have used sleep cycle, but my experience it's useful in a way, but my experience has been that sometimes it can, it can create more anxiety about sleep. And I've heard that as a, a common critique of like, uh, these different apps, because when you're tracking every little thing about it, then you're waking up and you're like, Oh, I only got a 56% score last night. Like my day is going to be horrible. And then you kind of are presetting that for your day. When can those be helpful? And are there, are they generally maybe not a great idea to dig into unless it's kind of something that uh, a psychologist or a therapist has recommended for you? Yeah, that's a very good question. Very commonly asked question. When I talk to different sleep doctors, we talk about this topic often. Overall, I think a lot of us, our idea is, you know, if you don't have sleep concerns, you don't have insomnia, you don't have these kind of um, difficulties with sleep, then wearing a tracker is not bad. And uh, you can, you know, it's monitor other aspects of your health. And just, uh, you don't worry about sleep, you're just curious, you want to know, that's fine. Just keep in mind, the, none of the trackers so far are very accurate. It just, you know, it's just a tracker. No matter how many sensations it can detect, it won't be able to replace the technique in a hospital, you sleep there for one night, do the sleep study, right? A tracker just won't be able to do things like that accurate. It detects different things based on different mechanisms. So it sometimes makes the different stage of sleep a little bit. But I would say if people have insomnia or not sleep very well, then have a tracker and constantly monitor sleep could cause problem. And actually there are type of insomnia nowadays. It's not in the diagnosis manual, but uh, clinically we are aware of it. It's caused by trackers, by these technologies. Uh, yeah. Be why? Because people, when, they, when we track sleep, we take sleep as a performance, just as any tasks. Sleep is a task. I need to perform well. Every morning I need to check how did I perform last night? And then what can I do to perform better tomorrow? But we cannot control sleep. It's not something I can try harder than I can sleep better. It's just when we have that mindset, it just won't work. Even for the sleep habits, uh, behavior strategies we talked about earlier. If people have too strong mind that I going to do everything right, just make sure my sleep is good. With that mindset, it's still going to cause problem. Sleep should be a natural thing. We should allow it to happen. <laughs> go with the flow, let go of control, trust our body, just let sleep naturally happen. But 
see it as a performance and using a tracker, it exactly the opposite. Yeah, I think a lot of people have trouble with just allowing their body to naturally do. And I, I, you know, what effect does something like caffeine? There's a lot of us that are using way too much caffeine uh, in our daily lives. And I've noticed how significantly I've quit caffeine. I started drinking it again. And I noticed how significantly that affected my sleep quality. And it's like, you know, I'm trying to figure out all these other things. Like, am I going to sleep on time? What is my evening routine? What's my sleep environment like? When really it's probably the thing that's causing the issue is is, is most likely excessive caffeine consumption during the day. Mm-hmm. I I drink coffee every morning too. Like right, even right now I have coffee <laughs> with me, right? Just like you. But there are a lot of mixed research about that. Mm. Um, I think for caffeine, I always just help people to remember caffeine just have a very long half life. Many of us may not know the half life of caffeine is about four to seven hours. That means for some people, caffeine can take up to 14-ish hours to get out of our system. But from the time we drink it to the time it's gone, it's the whole day, basically. So if we drink coffee too late and if we are sensitive to coffee, so we're going to be in trouble. Like I used to uh, go out before COVID, I went out with friends for boba tea, of course who thinks there are a lot of caffeine in it, but then it's it's black tea, uh, yeah. a lot of caffeine. I end up not sleeping the whole night or I had very fragmented sleep, possibly in the you know light stage of sleep most times. So I just feel like horrible like, that night after sleep. But, you know, because I'm very sensitive to caffeine, so I will not uh, drink it. And I normally recommend people try not drink it if they are sensitive, not drink it after noon. So just leave enough time for it to get out of your system. But there are research showing caffeine compared to smoking and other things it actually impact our sleep very minimally. And for some people who are not sensitive mm. to caffeine, it may not have that negative impact at all. So, um, but literature in this field are still new, you know, mixed. It's hard to say, okay, definitely don't do it. Do it in what way? Normally, we just have this guideline trying to educate people about this and encourage people to make their own choice and be aware of this. Yeah, I think the half-life thing is something that I know a lot of people don't know. I bring that up often when I'm talking to people and they're like, wait, what? I didn't realize it stayed in my system that long. I drank it at four o'clock in the evening. Why am I not able to sleep at 11 o'clock at night? And it's, uh, I mean, experientially, once you are aware of that, uh, it's, it's very obvious. Mm-hmm. Yes. I even have patients quoted that, that like a research or this kind of statement when I meet them in session, they said, Hey, I already cut down caffeine after I know about that. But somehow my sleep is still bad. What else can I do? Yeah, right. Is there, if I maybe am, I think most of the listeners of the show are a little uh, already into self-improvement or habits and that kind of thing. So I would hope that some of them are already thinking about their sleep patterns and, and things. But let's say someone doesn't really do much uh, in regards to consciously thinking about their sleep, but they have trouble sleeping. Where are some places where maybe there might be the most impact if they make some specific changes to their habits around sleep? I would say uh, even though there are a lot of things we can do, there are some very easy, simple things 
can people can get started with, and nothing fancy, you know. Remember, for sleep, our circadian rhythm, our biology, always strong, and we should always go back to it. So、uh, we can always start from regulating our circadian rhythm, because it's strong enough to help us sleep. So people can always start from getting up at a consistent time throughout the week. I mean, Monday to Sunday, <laughs> not. A big discrepancy between weekdays and weekends, right? That just throw us off. It's a very unpopular idea. <laughs> yeah, and working from home is is quite challenging. So I always people say, "Oh, it's so hard. I cannot, you know, go to bed at the same time, get up at the same time, other time." I said, "You know, if we have to choose bedtime versus wake up time, I choose wake up time. If you cannot control when you go to bed, then regulate when you get up first." Because when we get up first in the morning, always consistently. Consistently means not exactly that clock, but you know, a half hour wiggle room, right? And that way, our body build up this routine that oh, okay, wake up around this time, reset circadian rhythm, like in the mornings, like the anchor, and then I go, go, go. Even nighttime can shift when I go to bed. But morning time always like that. That's very healthy and helpful to our body. Uh huh. So I always recommend people that's the always easy first step to do for sleep. How long does it usually take for someone to, you know, for、uh, their their circadian rhythm to kind of get used to and and get into that set pattern、uh, if they're waking up at the same time every day. I think sometimes that can be a very difficult task to undertake if you're used to just kind of sleeping as long as、uh, you can or want to, especially on the weekends. So I'm just curious, like if there's any research on how long that takes.、Uh, you mean how、general. long it takes to build up this habit? Yeah. Like, oh, okay. It's not long. Think about just a weekend of schedule can totally throw us off. Right, and then Sunday night, Monday morning, we may not feel as good. So I would say our circadian rhythm is very sensitive. Every day, two days, you already see a difference. So、uh, for every week, if we want, I understand people want sleep in, especially a night owl have to get up early to to work. That is difficult. But if we just Uh, cannot do that, we may suffer more. It's just very, very painful that way. So I think people can use different methods, like use light in the morning to help us wake up early. If we have to get up early for weekdays, like around seven or eight, but we are night owl, we naturally sleep until ten or eleven. Then、um, during the weekends, maybe still get up like. Eight or nine, maybe、um, a little bit later. But then during the daytime, can take a short nap、uh, or do more activities and try to go to bed a little bit early. Just keep a healthy sleep、um, quantity, whatever our body needs. Everybody needs different things. That would possibly be healthier than just shift. Shift the schedule all over the place. There's so much more I could ask about these topics, but I think that we've covered a lot of really good stuff and a lot of valuable stuff that the listeners can go sit on and 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 really think about how that can apply to their own lives.、Uh, and if they're struggling with sleep, 
I think this is a good opportunity to take some of these things uh, and and try them out. And some of this information, you know, that's uh, there's some valuable things you covered in it that I've paid a lot of attention to sleep for a long time and I maybe didn't was misinformed or didn't know about some of the, the, the research. So thank you so much. Is there somewhere uh, I know on your website, there's a lot of resources. You have a lot of really great content on there and some like interactive quizzes and stuff that um, people can kind of assess, do some self check um, stuff about their sleep and some other anxiety and things. You want to let us know where that website is and if there's anywhere else or any other information you'd like to be able to connect to. If people want to know more about mental health, they can just go to my clinic's website, mindbodygarden.com. Uh, we have a lot of English and Chinese blogs there. I also have two podcasts, one in Chinese, all about mental health, one in English, all about sleep, called Deep Into Sleep. So um, no matter which topic people are more interested in, they can learn more about that. And uh, uh, I can send you the, the, all of them are on my clinic's website, but I also have deepintosleep.co as my podcast website, but they all link together. Great. And we'll uh, make sure to link all of that in the show notes below. So thank you so much for joining us. And is there one piece of information or advice or just message that you'd like to leave people with before we end the show? Yeah, love that question always. <laughs> <laughs> Regarding, I just want to say something about sleep that yes. I want to encourage people to really trust our body and listen to the signal of our body. Just remember, no matter how bad our sleep is right now, our body knows how to sleep. Sometimes because too many things in our mind, we just cannot connect with the signals our body is trying to send us. We are sleepy, but we are not sleeping, we are working. Right, we just ignore the signal and then for a while we just cannot detect it anymore. So there are a lot of ways to help people to reconnect with our body and then sleep can happen naturally. Just go with the flow and trust, have the hope, have the trust that sleep could happen. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.